This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Paul Rayburn discusses his new book, Do Fathers Matter? Then PW editorial director Jim Milliot provides a rundown of the largest global publishers. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. So not a lot on nonfiction. No, two. Two titles and none in the top top. Uh, Top 10, I should say. You have to go all the way to number 20 uh, with uh, this book by Simon Sinek. Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. Uh, This is one we have not reviewed yet, uh, but the uh, jacket copy says, Why do only a few people get to say, I love my job? It seems unfair that finding fulfillment at work is like winning a lottery, that only a few lucky ones get to feel valued by their organization, to feel like they belong. So uh, this is a bit of a self-help business book and trying to find your way through work. Um, So that's at number 20. And... Uh, number 22 by Jenny Mullen. She's an actress in L.A. She has a big Twitter following. And uh, the book is I Like You Just the Way I Am. Stories about me and some other people. And here she realizes she wants only one thing, and that's to be loved by everyone. Uh, so uh, she's been compared to Chelsea Handler, a great humor writer. And the book is blurred by Chelsea. And there's some comments on uh, when you look around that say that she's even funnier. So this is number 22, and she seems to be off to a pretty good start for her first book. All right. Well, yes. maybe next week we'll have some more movement in the, the nonfiction world. Keep waiting for that next yes. summer blockbuster to hit. Yes. Meanwhile, there's been plenty of movement on the fiction list. We have a new number one this week, Top Secret 21 by Janet Ivanovich. It's the 21st book in the Stephanie Plum series. Uh, It's a Stephanie Plum book. I mean, if you've been following the series for 20 books, you will want to pick up the 21st book, as is evidenced by Ivanovich's sales. 89,000 copies in one week. So. Straight up to the top of the list. Sure. Um, The next new book is Silkworm by Robert Galbraith, who is, of course, J.K. Rowling. Mm -hmm. Um, It's down at number four, a very respectable showing. We gave it a starred review, Mm. uh, saying that Rowling, under her Galbraith pseudonym, again, demonstrates her adroitness at crafting a classic fair play whodunit in a contemporary setting, peopled with fully realized primary and secondary characters. So that's a very strong recommendation from PW's mystery section there. Great. And uh, Golden Age fans will be delighted by passages that could have been written by John Dixon Carr, which is high praise indeed. Mm. So um, that's at number four, The Silkworm. And it is published as by Robert Galbraith. I don't think Rowling's name even appears on the collar, on the, the cover. It just says uh, by the author of The Cuckoo's Calling. So uh, you might have to be playing a little bit of publishing inside baseball to know who's who there. But at this point, it's not like it's a secret. Right. Yeah. Uh, next at number five, we have All Fall Down by Jennifer Weiner. Uh, she's obviously a best-selling author, and she takes us down the slippery slope of 
of prescription drug addiction in what PW's review says is a page-turning saga about a working mom who uses pills to deal with recurrent pain and life's increasing challenges. And Wiener doesn't take Allison's path to redemption lightly and convincingly shows that addiction can indeed be overcome, but only with genuine commitment and hard, hard work. Mm. So it's all fall down. That's at number five. Right. A little bit further down, uh, it's nice to see some science fiction and fantasy on the list. I'm always happy when that happens, as you know, I'm a big fan. Uh, at number 15 is Rogues, edited by George R. R. Martin and Gardner Dozois. Mm. Dozois' uh, editor extraordinary. He's been uh, turning out really exceptional anthologies, including uh, a renowned Year's Best anthology series for 30 years. Uh, and he's been teaming up with Martin for a whole series of these themed anthologies, um, which provide fantasy stories on various different uh, topics different with different focuses um, and so this one is called Rogues and it's about uh, those lovable anti-heroes who go around uh, like say Robin Hood mm-hmm. would be a rogue uh, and, and people uh, modeled in, in that particular mold and there's some very big names uh, Gillian Flynn, Patrick mm-hmm. Rothfuss Neil Gaiman, Connie Willis um, so very nice to uh, see this getting some traction on the bestseller list. Wow impressive. And finally, a little further down at number 19, Terminal City by Linda Fairstein. Uh, This is the 16th novel featuring Assistant District Attorney Alexandra Coop Cooper, uh, and it's the first one since last year's Mm -hmm. uh, iteration. Uh, We said that it was gripping and uh, that a complicated, evolving romance between Coop and another detective muddles the pursuit as his shady recent past puts her on edge. And we say that the tour of Midtown, New York, both above and below ground, is alone worth the price of admission. Right. Well, sounds good so far. June seems to be good for... Fiction, for yeah. genre fiction. Yeah, big big fiction titles. Uh, you know, as much as people dismiss genre fiction, um, it really is consistently on these lists. Lots yeah. of mysteries, lots of thrillers, um, certainly the occasional science fiction fantasy right. title. And, uh, of course, if we look down into uh, the mass market list, it would be all all the genre fiction right. piling up there as well. So um, don't, don't be surprised the next time somebody tells you that they read the stuff. It is, in fact popular. And a lot of people are reading it exactly. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Paul Rayburn tells us that fathers do matter and why. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Paul Rayburn on the line. His new book is Do Fathers Matter? What Science is Telling Us About the Parent We've Overlooked. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. What first made you ask the question of whether fathers matter? Well, my previous book was called Acquainted with the Night, and it was about problems a couple of my kids had with mental illness during their teenage years. So they're grown up now and they're fine, which is nice. Um, but after that episode, I began to wonder, you know, what fathers do? Did I help them? Did I do the right things? Um, what do we know about what fathers contribute to their kids? And it turns out if you'd asked that question a generation or so ago, uh, even the experts, the psychologists and biologists would have said, well, fathers don't contribute all that much. We were sort of uh, amiable bystanders at best. 
Um, in the last, uh, I would say, two or three decades, that has radically changed. People finally started to look at fathers and discovered an enormous amount that fathers contributed to their kids, including all kinds of surprising things. Uh, unfortunately, all this research on fathers sits around in journals that even science writers like I don't look at uh, very often. So uh, it was an opportunity for me to uh, burrow into that research and try to write something that more people would see. And what kind of journals are those, and why why even science writers like you aren't aren't uh, able to uh, or, or don't often easily find them? Well, uh, despite the reputation of science writers as knowing all things about everything, uh, we actually have a fairly uh, limited uh, perspective in some ways. We look at the same journals, four or five journals that are the top journals, and uh, you know various writers specialize in things. I've specialized in families over the last ten years. And uh, it's just not something that most of us get to, you know. And that's actually one of the joys of doing this kind of work is that you can pick an area that uh, you don't know too much about and often discover a treasure trove of information, and that's what I discovered with regard to fathers. So in nearly every sphere of human life, men get a lot more attention and a lot more approval than women do. So why have men been so overlooked in the realm of parenting? Well, uh, let me tell you, first of all, I'll give you one hint as to, as to how badly they've been overlooked. And that is, if you, you can do this great experiment, you can try at home. Uh, if you search the National Library of Medicine for mothers, I think the last time I did it, I got about 250,000 studies that popped up. If you do fathers, you get on the neighborhood of 20 or 25,000. So there are about 10 times as many studies on mothers as fathers. That's a very crude measure, but it reflects the reality, which is much more research on mothers. The question why that's the case is not really a scientific question, but I have my, my thoughts on that. If you go back to the 60s and 70s, most families still follow the old model of mother at home every day, father gone to work most of the day, and if he's lucky, it's home in time to check in with his kids before they go to bed at night. Um, and it just seemed obvious that all the action must be with mothers. They were the ones there with the kids. They'd drop them off at school and pick them up and spend a lot more time with them. So, you know, even experts get a blinkered view sometimes, and they take the world as it is and think there must be a reason why it's like this. When the economy started to change in the 70s, and more mothers started going out and earning wages, and many families became two-wage earner couples, um, that, I think, provoked a re-examination. Now, now some fathers were spending more time with their kids, and I think the searchers finally woke up and said, wait a minute, you know, what's going on? We should take a look at this. So talk us through some of the stereotypes that you encountered about fathers and and the role that fathers play and and the nature of fatherhood. Uh, And what is the science supporting those stereotypes or arguing against them? Well, I can can give you one that goes back a ways, but I I think it's a a good one because it really illustrates an important point. And that is, um, you know, something related to the role of fathers as disciplinarians. Now, if you, uh, you know, look back at, uh, let's say, Leave it to Beaver, it's funny, I get interesting reactions for that. It's the, it's the old model of the father who comes home at night and uh, addresses whatever happened that day. Some people think he was a good father, and some people not so much, but he clearly sort of laid down the law in, in, in that family. And in World War II, a lot of young men were failing their physicals, and the question was, what's going on here? And all the experts, the supposed experts, thought they knew what was happening. Fathers had not been strict enough with their sons and, you know, uh, conferred enough discipline or used enough discipline, and the kids weren't strong enough to withstand, the, you know, the entry into the armed services. Um, 
when people began to look at that in a more intelligent way, they realized that wasn't the case. In fact, uh, stern fathers who are disciplinarians are likely to, to turn off their kids. And it's the fathers who are warm and had rich, engaging relationships with their sons who raised the healthy, masculine sons, because those sons grew up wanting to emulate their fathers. Mm. And so, but why was there a drop in, in, in physical activity, or at least in, in uh, passing the tests? Well, you know, presumably because these fathers who had tried to be stern with their kids um, had, you know, rather than encouraging masculine qualities, had discouraged them because the kids were unhappy with their relationships with their fathers. Oh, wow. So how, how does this research apply um, moving into the present day to same-sex parents who are increasingly visible? If you have two mothers in a house, uh, does that mean that the child suffers for lack of a father? If you have two fathers in a house, uh, does that mean the child gets a double dose of all these great things you're finding out about fathers? How does it work? Well, uh, so I didn't write a lot about uh, gay and lesbian uh, families just because I had a big enough piece to bite off with um, with, you know, fathers, uh, families with a mother and father in the house. Uh, but I did talk to some gay families, and I wrote a little bit about it. And uh, what's interesting, I think, is that, you know, straight families um, tend to fall into stereotypical roles that have been handed to us. Okay, so fathers are more likely in a lot of families to be the ones who teach the kids how to play sports, and mothers might be the ones to teach the kids other things. And, you know, there's a role breakdown that we're all familiar with. Fathers tend to do certain things. Mothers tend to do other things. And, you know, some of us try to break out of that, and we don't all fall into that by road like a bunch of uh, clones. But we're drawn by that because of our culture and our, our you know, our society. In, in gay and lesbian couples, they don't have that quite the same way. The, the several couples that I've talked to, um, you know, feel like they're inventing the roles. You know, they're, they're inventing new roles for parents. In other words, in a lesbian couple, it's not like one is kind of the father and one is kind of the mother, but they both, you know, they both share some characteristics of fathers and some of mothers. So the short answer there is I think those families, as, as we begin to study them more, are going to teach us a lot about, you know, stereotypical roles in the family and, and give the rest of us a lot of ideas about how we might want to reorganize our lives in our families. Let me just add, if I might, that um, while there isn't a lot of research that I'm aware of that looks at these roles uh, stereotypes or lack of stereotypes in gay couples, there is now a good body of research that shows that their kids can, you know, become healthy and happy uh, adults. And, you know, the other example that often comes up is families with single mothers. Um, so, you know, how, do you, how can you make an argument that there are a lot of important things that fathers contribute to kids and at the same time uh, say that, you know, a mother, single mothers shouldn't panic? And the answer is um, we have lots of examples of children of single mothers who've done, you know, done well. I can think of two who've done moderately well in their uh, professional careers, which are Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. So found some success in their professional lives Just a despite bit. being raised by single mothers. Or maybe because of being raised by single mothers. And we, in, in, a, in a single case, we can't really know. Yes, that's anecdotal, of course. But... Um, Sort of more thoughtful answer to your question is that um, fathers do contribute a lot. I think the, the the bottom line here is that fathers are important, but not essential. However, there's one other piece of that, which is if single mothers, you know, look at the kind of research that I've written about in Do Fathers Matter, um, 
and begin to see what fathers contribute, there are ways that they can compensate for that. I had a, a single mother uh, in my kid's school run up to me the other day and say, well, what should I do? Well, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, to compensate for not having a father in the house. And the answer is, one answer is, some researchers think it's important to involve another male in the family. So if you have a, if a single mother has a brother or another family member or a neighbor or a close friend, it's good to involve uh, those men in the family life because they can do some of the things that biological fathers can do, and it's a good thing for the kids. You talk about genetic programming and, and social development in your book. What what impact has fatherhood had on, say, genetic programming? Well, um, one of the interesting things that I've discovered about fathers' genetics is, is quite quite a bit different from what we usually think of. You know, we know fathers obviously um, pass on genes for height and hair color and eye color, as, as do mothers, and um, we know how that system works. But from even from pregnancy, fathers are giving their uh, soon-to-be child a genetic endowment that's critically important. So it turns out we might think of conception as a you know harmonious spiritual blending of two sets of genes and and describe it in poetic terms because we're emotional about having children. But there's actually a great tug of war going on. Fathers equip fetuses with genes. These, these genes come only from fathers, and or they're active only when they come from fathers. And these genes give the fetus the ability to regulate its mother's blood pressure and blood sugar levels and all kinds of things, because the fetus has to be sure that it gets the nutrients it needs. Now, the genes from the father can, uh, can become too active, and the fetus can actually harm the mother if it uh, extracts too many nutrients from its mother. So mothers give the fetus a set of genes that compensate for that. So it, when everything works well, um, a, a developing fetus has genes from its father that are demanding resources from mom, genes from its mother that are uh, moderating that demand, and so the fetus gets exactly what it needs and everything works out. If any of those genes fail, then those kids can be born with very severe uh, genetic ailments, which sometimes happen. So, so now talk to us about older fathers. We're talking about genes, and, and you talk also about older fathers, just you know, both procreation and also maybe socially. Right. So, um, so I have a chapter on older fathers, and I, I am an older father, so I don't want anybody to think I'm pointing a finger at somebody else. Um, but it, it turns out this is, you know, I guess a set of negative or unfortunate things that some fathers contribute to their children. Um, older fathers uh, have... Um, the children of older fathers face some extra risks. So um, normally a child would have about a 1% uh, risk of having schizophrenia. If a father's in his 40s or 50s, that can go to 2 or 3%. Mm. Uh, older father, kids of older fathers have an increased risk of having Down syndrome, of having autism. So, you know, serious uh, diseases. And we've known about this with women for a long time. And, and I think most people know that older women have an increased risk of having a child with Down syndrome, but it's also true for men. Now, this does not mean that older men who are listening should panic by any means, um, but I do think that the, these are risks that men should know about, older men should know about when they're considering having children, and I think many of them do not know about these. Uh, the medical profession has not been good at uh, spreading the word on this and educating fathers and mothers uh, about these increased risks. So. 
Um, so I wanted to write about that to, to try to spread that message. So older fathers, like older mothers, can have healthy kids, and usually do. Most kids turn out to be fine, but there is an increased risk. And it's not such a big risk that older fathers, you know, might want to decide not to have children, although some might. But it is a risk they might want to take into account. So um, what have you discovered about absent fathers or fathers who are only intermittently involved in their children's lives? Uh, well, uh, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that that's not a good thing. And uh, I can give you one illustrative example. Um, when uh, teenage daughters, uh, I live in a secure family with a mother and a father and have good relationships with their parents, you know, they develop through those teenage years. They go into puberty and uh, they mature sexually and so forth. And, you know, with a little bit of luck, they don't get into too many risky situations. And so that's certainly what we try to do as parents, avoid those things. Um, when the father is not there, uh, there's actually a biological effect on the teenage daughters. They go into puberty, on average, at an earlier age. So this is not something they control or it's no response of, you know, it's no conscious response to a father not being present. It's real biology. Uh, and those same girls who go into puberty earlier are also at increased risk of engaging in risky sexual behavior. They're at increased risk of teenage pregnancy. And we know what flows from all those things. But, you know, the girls who go down that road have a tough time often trying to get back on track and uh, get into a stable situation. So the answer for the father it, it, again, to me, it's just another example of how strong this bond is between fathers and kids, that a father being absent changes, you know, profound biology of teenage girls. Hmm. Did, did you do any research into um, step-parents, adoptive fathers, uh, that sort of less traditional family arrangement? No, I, I didn't. Again, it was just something I didn't get to. I, was, I, have, I have a file on it, and I thought at one point it might be part of the book, but It does remind me of one thing that I did look at, um, not by design, but I stumbled across it, as so often happens when you're doing a book like this. Um, It turns out that uh, these effects of fathers on children can last through subsequent generations. So um, there's a town in way north in Scandinavia called Overcollex in Sweden. And for some reason, we have records of the good harvest and bad harvests you know, in the 19th century and early 20th century uh, in this town, somehow because uh, there was a royal government and these records were mandated to be kept. And so we know the men in that town, when they had good years and lots to eat, and when they had bad years and not so much to eat and had to screw by. Well, it turns out that the grandchildren of those men, if the grandfathers had not very much to eat at a certain critical period during their adolescence, their grandchildren have a lower mortality rate. If the grandparents had a lot to eat, their grandchildren have a higher mortality rate. So nobody knows exactly how that happens. That is fascinating. It is is fascinating. And and again, to me, to to follow the theme here, uh, it shows that, you know, fathers have, have this bond with their children, and it extends to subsequent generations. Now, whether... It makes sense to great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren uh, researchers don't know yet. But again, you know, behavioral things that men do are affecting the biology of their offspring. So you're the author of science books, as you said. Um, but I just want to touch briefly on your previous book, uh, Acquainted with the Night, A Parent's Quest to Understand Depression and Bipolar Disorder in His Children, 
when and why did you decide to write a very personal story of science? Well, I, I could, the truth is I started out to write a science book, which wasn't going to be a personal story, and I thought I would establish myself at the beginning of the book uh, as the father who'd experienced this with his kids. So I wrote you know, what was supposed to be a preface um, on my personal experience, and then I was going to break and in the first chapter go into some of the science about mental illness in kids. And I kept writing and kept writing, and I thought, well, I can, you know, I can break off here soon. I just have to write this scene, and then I can be done and get into the science. And with the encouragement of my editor, Jerry Howard, at Broadway Books, um, you know, I continued with the personal story and, and ultimately wrote the personal story uh, with some of the science woven into the, to the story to explain what's happening. So um, it was, uh, you know... Anybody who's listening who's tried to write memoir will understand this. People come up to you and say, gee, it must have been so cathartic uh, to write about that and, you know, kind of a release. And, and the fact is, for me anyway, it was, it was awful. Those were very difficult times. And I had to go through, you know, and look at medical records and things I'd written at the time and, uh, and relive those incidents and relive those hospital visits and all those things to be able to write about it. And then, you know, so I would have to sit at my desk and conjure up, um, you know, that memory of how I felt on a particularly bad evening. So it, I think the book, uh, the book had a tremendous response, and I think it helped a lot of people. It's a very honest book, and many, many people wrote and emailed afterwards and said, I felt as though you were living in my home. You know, you, you got it. You got it right. So I, I'm pleased with that. So just to wrap this up, do you have any advice for fathers who, like you, want to incorporate some science into their personal understanding of how they connect with their children and what they can do to be better fathers? Well, I think if, if people look at the book, they, they'll see that it's a resource. So there are all kinds of things in there. Some things really spoke to me as a father. Others might find other things that they think are more important and they'd like to think about it in their own parenting. Uh, but, you know, a lot of it comes down to, you know, spending time with your children um, and being engaged, emotionally involved, and engaging in give and take. You know, don't when you sit down to play a game, don't specify all the rules. Let the kids specify some of the rules. Let them decide what game to play. That's one that I have to think about because I tend to be a, a bit of an, an authoritarian father, so I try to watch that. But, um, you know, the science will give people, I think, lots of ideas about how to be better fathers and give mothers uh, some ideas. Um, about how to be, uh, you know, how to help their, their partners or spouses be better fathers. i give you one thing at the parting shot. Um, so when fathers play with their children, they get a rise in oxytocin. This is a hormone associated with bonding uh, between people and sometimes associated with romantic involvement. And so here's the speculative part. That's the fact. The oxytocin goes up when they play with their kids. And my, uh, my personal interpretation of that is, now that they're full of all the oxytocin, they're likely to be much nicer to their wives. So child's play has good effects not only on the kids, but also on wives and the family overall. We've been talking with Paul Rayburn. You can find his book, Do Fathers Matter, in stores right now. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you guys. I enjoyed it. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot tells us what's happening with the biggest global players in publishing. So stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. 
Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot tells us what's moving and shaking in international publishing. There's a lot of stuff going on these days. Tell us about it. There is. Uh, there is, Mark. I'm glad to be here. Uh, for Monday, we're doing our annual fifth or sixth year now, ranking of the largest international publishers. Um, to qualify, you have to have revenue of at least uh, $200 million. And for the fifth year in a row, Pearson is number one with uh, revenue that is pretty impressive at uh, over $9 billion. Wow. So, and that even includes getting rid of half of Penguin, well, all of Penguin, which is now under Random House. Right. Wow. So when we say ranking, is it just by by income or by net or, or how how are we how it's are total, we ranking? Total net sales, and it's it's interesting in, in one respect in that the top four publishers are Pearson, which is educational and some professional, mm-hmm. Reed Elsevier, pretty much all professional, Thompson, all professional, Walters Kluwer, all professional, and doesn't uh, come to Random House in um, fifth place where uh, the trade uh, makes its first appearance, you know, and their sales are over $3 billion when you take into account everything they, they own now. So does that include Penguin? How, how did the Penguin numbers get divvied up for, presumably these are for 2013? Right, this is for 2013, exactly. Um, it's been almost a, exactly a year. Uh, July 1st will be the date that uh, the Penguin Random House merger was completed. So what they did was... Uh, the first six months of the year, the revenue went to Pearson, and the second six months of the year, the revenue went to Random House. Since Random House is the the majority uh, owner in the in the Penguin Random House operation, mm-hmm. and Random House also includes their their German operation, which is not part of Random House, but it's in these larger numbers, and also. Late 2012, they b- took the 50% stake in Random House Montadero that they hadn't already owned. So those numbers are fully in there now. Mm-hmm. So it's a big company. Yes, indeed. So so since we're uh, in the middle of World Cup right now, we're talking about nationalities. Which countries are leading it then? Well, uh, it, it may surprise you in that it's a little more diverse than you, you might think in that. You know, the United States is by far and away the the largest acquirer or spender on on books mm-hmm. and all types of content. But a lot of the major houses are not located here. Uh, the biggest one is actually McGraw-Hill Education, which only comes in around 10 uh, mm-hmm. on the list. And you, you find them from all over the place. You know, getting back to the, or the top four, at least, you know, Pearson is the UK mm-hmm. and uh, based in Holland as well, Reed Elsevier. Uh, also has some dual citizenship, the UK and the Netherlands. Ro- Thompson is here. Ro- Walters Kluwer is in the Netherlands. Random House is really, you know, headquartered in Germany where Bertelsmann is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Hachette Leave is France. Mm-hmm. I'll just round out the top ten here while we're looking at it. Holtzbrink is Germany. Grupo Planada is Spain. Uh, then Cengage is the US and Canada. And Hill is the United States. Wow. So it's... Uh, We've come to we noticed this actually a number of years ago when it seemed like international publishers were more interested in book publishing than some of the American media companies that were placing more of their bets on video and, and television and all sorts of things mm-hmm. down the range, other than print. 
Right. It sounds like that's very similar to um, the the concerns that have been playing out over where readers' attention is going, that, that books are really seen as competing against movies and video games and so forth. So it's not surprising that publishers would have different ideas about where they can make the most money. Right, absolutely. And one thing this all, the, the chart will also reflect is that even within books, there's been a, an ongoing um, strategy to really focus on one particular area. And again, as we already have mentioned, Pearson, Reed, Thompson, and Walters Kluwer are professional education, mm-hmm. virtually no trade, especially since Pearson's out of, out of Penguin. Random House, on the other hand, is strictly trade. Right. And HarperCollins here, you know, one of the, the other large American companies is strictly trade. And Scholastic is, you know, trade and uh, uh, education. That's a little bit of a different um, spin. But that has been occurring, you know, steadily now for, you know, 15 years or so. And you just see it start in the United States, but even international companies, they really want to be in, for most the most part, one segment or the other. And so, as far as the uh, the first four, I think you you mentioned uh, before we got to the first trade. So we're dealing with a lot of academic journals, or I'm sorry, academic publications, or or, or technical books for universities. Right. Well, that's the other thing that you know, especially in developing countries. I mean, education and professionals, mm-hmm. professional titles are really valued just for the types of things right. you already mentioned. You know, they're trying to build their infrastructure. They're trying to get, you know, more well-versed in the sciences and that sort of stuff. So they are looking for materials that can help them along that path. And, you know, publishing is, is one place they can start. Not to mention that um, per unit prices are much higher. I mean, you're going to pay more for a textbook on engineering than you're going to pay for a novel. Well, Rose, nobody will dispute you that uh, (laughs) professional publishing and educational publishing is more profitable than trade, which some might argue is why the Americans were the first to get out of trade. (laughs) So do you have any um, senses of of unit sales? Is that one of the things you track, or are you really just looking at the net numbers? No, we're really just looking at the net here and where we can, um, you know, some profitability. I mean, there, and we kind of touched on it a second ago. You know, the thing that always kind of is amazing in the digital transition that gets overlooked to me is that book publishers across the globe are still largely profitable. And we do have a few mm. cases, unfortunately, where some of these companies did file for Chapter 11, Cengage being one of them. But some of that was due to um, without getting too technical, um, when they were acquired, their, their companies that acquired and really loaded on a lot of debt, that was really unsustainable. So they had to restructure. It's, it wasn't really from an operating standpoint. It was really had more to do with how the company was financed. So, you know, but by and large, you know, book publishing has continued to be, you know, profitable, you know, throughout the world. So the, the apocalypse we were all expecting five or six years ago has <laughs> failed to materialize. So far, we're holding our breath. And then another thing we've tried to do here, you know, we go down, as I said, to as low as $200 million. You're finding more uh, brick companies without, without so much India uh, coming onto the list. Brazil has mm-hmm. um, got three companies on there. 
Unfortunately, um, and this is where some of the international characteristics come into place, uh, their currency has been devalued in the last couple of years against the euro and the dollar. So when you do the translation, what was once, let's say, 350 million becomes 200 right. million. Mm. So they've lost a little standing, standing on, on the rankings. But of course, China is probably what is the most interest to a lot of people. Um, we had a couple on the list for the first time in 2012. This year we have those same two. And we were hoping to add a couple more, but you might find this hard to believe. It's hard to get information about Chinese <laughs> I was I was going to ask how, how much how much effort that was just to get uh, any kind of, of sales numbers or, or revenue numbers at all. Well, it's interesting. You know, I didn't work on that part of it myself directly. We have a consultant uh, over in Germany who handles that. But they are getting listed on different types of um, stock exchanges. So they do have information that they that is actually audited um so the ones where it's clear and we really know that they're in publishing those are the ones that made the list there were two companies that had well over a billion dollars in sales but to try to figure out what was tied to books and what was tied to tv it was just was just impossible um but they are um they're very interested in the Chinese in trying to expand their their book properties and the, maybe the influence of books as well. Um, as you may know, we may have talked about this on an earlier show, at the 2015 Book Expo America, China is the, uh, the featured country. And word is right. that they're taking perhaps the, the largest amount of space uh, ever taken by um, a company that's been one of these featured mm. featured countries. So we'll see how that shakes out. But I think it's another indication of their their eagerness to um, try to expand in, in, in the book world. So, you know, but other than the surprises, or maybe it wasn't a surprise that Europeans topped the list for the most part. China is up and coming, and uh, trade is not as strong as it was. What other surprises did you find here? Uh, well, again, uh, the the surprise maybe is the stability. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The rankings they've had they've held pretty much true to form the last three or four years. As we said, Pearson's been leading the pack for a while, and part of that is despite a lot of the mergers and acquisitions, a fair amount of the mergers and acquisitions themselves are taking place among these larger publishers. I mean, as we just mentioned, you know, when Random House merge with Penguin, well, it was two top six companies basically merging with each Mm -hmm. other. Um, And even when they did the deal, Random House has another deal that'll close sometimes this year to buy Santiana, one of the largest Spanish publishers, Mm -hmm. while their parent company was in the top 15. So as much as we talk about consolidation, and some of it is actually occurring among the bigger players themselves. And, you know, down the road, you know, uh, again, this year we'll have Harper Collins. You know, bought there's bought Harlequin. That deal will be you know completed sometime this year, and that'll bump Harle- uh, Harper from about 15 or 16 up to maybe number 10, and Harlequin will disappear. Right. So right. it's you know it's fascinating. It's not just some of the little guys getting swallowed up. It's really. Um, some merging and inquiring among the largest guys themselves. And, you know, I think we all sometimes wonder how big is too big, but yeah, 
Apparently that threshold has not been reached yet. <laughs> well, Jim, whenever we have you on the show, you bring to us good news about publishing and, and some positive numbers. So <laughs> we'll continue having us on. So. Well, thank you very much, Mark. <laughs> Always nice to have you here. Thanks a lot, Jim. <laughs> thank you, Rose. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash radio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Every week, except next week. Except for next week. No show next week. But you can still listen to our many podcasts on the site. That's right. So thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you after July 4th. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 